Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. think there's a genuine church out there or a, a genuine Christian out there who doesn't want to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no question. Uh, there isn't a Christian here today in this room who doesn't long for their family and their friends to come to know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with Him, right? Truth be told, there's nothing, probably nothing, that you want more than to see your dad and mom. Your brother or sister, your son or daughter, your friend or your coworker come to faith in Jesus Christ. Am I wrong about that? Some of you have probably made yourself sick thinking about it. You lay awake at night and you pray for them. Maybe you fast for them. You want people to come to know Jesus because you know they need Him. For this life, for hope, and this life, and for the next. And so... There's an important question we need to ask that I want to ask this morning, and it's this. Um, how are people really coming to Christ today? How are people actually coming to Christ today? If we really care, if we really want to reach people with the gospel, how, how is it? How do people come to Christ? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Um, at this point, uh, we're We've probably only got oh, about a dozen uh, messages left in the book of Acts. Uh, just to give you a frame of reference of where we're at, uh, might take us just beyond the Christmas season. But Acts has been drilling into us this year the idea that we are to be Jesus' witnesses. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses to the nations. Uh, he, he, he says that to his disciples. And basically, you're going to be the ones, you're going to be my messengers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to entrust the gospel to you, and you're going to have to take this to the nations. You're going to be the ones who get to give people hope. You get, to, you get to share the message of forgiveness of sins with people. It's a privilege. And uh, we're going to look at a few principles today just to help us be more effective in this. It's more of an in-house talk discussion that we're having here. But um, we're also going to look at some hard evidence that reveals how people are actually coming to Christ today. So uh, let's look at verse 23. We'll pick it up there. We'll resume our journey there. Actually, back up to uh, verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, that is, that's Paul the Apostle, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to to Antioch, and uh, after spending some time there, he left, and he passed successively 
through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so what we're seeing here um, is Paul beginning his third missionary journey. Uh, After spending some time at his home church there in Antioch of Syria, uh, just kind of up there in the corner between the land of Israel and Turkey, it's kind of tucked up in there. I call it the armpit of Turkey. But he, he winters here, and then he leaves again for his third and final missionary journey. Careful uh, New Testament chronology indicates Paul likely started this journey in the spring of 53 AD, and it lasts until the spring of 57 AD. So this is going to be a four-year journey for him that he's embarking on, and uh, while most of his time was spent in Corinth over in Greece on his second missionary journey. Most of Paul's time on this journey is going to be spent in the city of Ephesus on the west coast of of Asia Minor, minor, what we call Turkey today, the country of Turkey. And uh, uh, if this is 53 AD, that means the church movement is 20 years old at this point. It's uh, been going on for about 20 years. And um, just as he did at the beginning of his second missionary journey, he makes a trip to central Turkey, uh, this area known as Galatia, Phrygia, to check on the churches that he's planted already, right, in in previous journeys. So he's going to travel right through Turkey and make his way to the west coast. But take note that Paul keeps investing in these churches, these disciples, in person. Now, verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, uh, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took note, or they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. Okay. Did you catch that? They took him aside, explained the way of God more accurately to him. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So the second heading setting we see uh, that Luke takes us to, Luke is the author, uh, is is Priscilla and Aquila instructing uh, this disciple of John named Apollos. Remember John the Baptist. Uh, He's one of John's disciples. Uh, Luke takes us away from the journeys of Paul and he just kind of gives us this snapshot of what's going on at Ephesus. And uh, if you remember from last week, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they were traveling by ship uh, on their way to Israel. Paul stops into the synagogue. They have a layover in Ephesus, we could say. And Paul just stops into the synagogue, uh, preaches the gospel to them, tells them about Jesus. And uh, they say they want him to stay, but Paul says, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I've got to move on. Lord willing, I'll return to you. But... Priscilla and Aquila stayed behind, and so they've been in Ephesus this whole time, over the winter, and um, anyway, they run into a Jewish man named Apollos, who is from Alexandria 
in northern Egypt on the coastline there. Alexandria at this time, this, this, this time period in history was the second largest city in the Roman Empire with a population estimated at about 600,000. So somewhere in there. Uh, it was known for its educational opportunities. It was home to the largest library in the world at the time. And it's a shame it got burned down. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a home to one of the largest uh, Jewish communities outside of the land of Israel. And it became a hub uh, uh, for what we've been calling Hellenistic Jews. Uh, these are folks that hopefully we've become acquainted with in Acts. A Hellenistic Jew was a Jew, but they, would, they were Greek-influenced Jews. So they kinda, kinda been a, they've kind of adapted to the Greek culture because Alexander the Great did such a, a great job of influencing the world with Greece, Grecian culture and language. And actually, Alexander is who this, this is named after. It's Alexandria. But... Um, Hellenistic Jews were diaspora Jews. They've been dispersed throughout the world. And uh, instead of Hebrew, they would carry a Septuagint Bible, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, sometimes you see that abbreviated LXX. And um, Alexandria prided themselves in this Septuagint translation of the of the scriptures because this is where it was translated and and they would actually celebrate it every year but um uh, just a, a very jewish city apparently the jews occupied two out of five districts city districts here and comprised uh one-third of the entire population actually they enjoyed uh freedom to to live and worship in alexandria until about a.d. 38 so, and that's when severe persecution broke out against them. But uh, Apollos is clearly one of these Hellenistic Jews from Alexandria. He, he's Jewish, but he has a Greek name. Uh, he's, he's named after, actually, a Greek god named Apollos. So, he probably carried a copy, a Septuagint copy of the Scriptures while he's going around preaching, telling people about, you know, John the Baptist's message about Jesus. And, and a lot of people think he might be the author of Hebrews. We don't know for sure. Um, he quotes the author of Hebrews, interestingly. Uh, he quotes the Septuagint frequently and in a very Hellenistic style. Uh, uh, he has great rhetorical skills, very eloquent. And uh, uh, Hebrews proves to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. And, you know, this says that Apollos is, you know, pretty much fits this bill, but who else does? Uh, probably Paul. So we don't, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews, but some suggest it could be Apollos. I just throw that out there just to get you thinking a little bit. But um, a lot of people, I want to say, by the way, a lot of people want to criticize uh, uh, the Bible or believers because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But that was very intentional on part of the author of the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is written from... Uh, a perspective of God speaking. The author of Hebrews didn't want himself to be named. He wrote in such a way that he's trying to get the Old Testament to speak to, to, speak to people personally, right? It's as if he's, he's writing as if God is speaking, right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The point is God is speaking. So I guess I just throw that out there because uh, you might come across that 
criticism sometime. But Apollos is described as a man who, he not only knows the word, it says he can preach it too, and he, and he preaches it with, with past passion. Look at this, this portrait of Apollos. He's, he's mighty in the scriptures. He knows the ways of God. He's eloquent. He's fervent. He's, he's bold. There's only one little problem. He's, he's not up to date. <laughs> Did you see that? He's not really up to date on the gospel. Uh, Luke qualifies his giftedness by saying he's, he's only associated with the baptism of John. And uh, so similar to Jesus, John, remember John had disciples who would follow John around, right? Kind of like following a rabbi. And uh, these disciples went out uh, just like Jesus' disciples. He, some of them, they went out and they were, they were sharing the message that uh, John's message, right? The, the message that we need to repent of our sins and look to the Messiah that is coming. Remember, John prepared the way for Jesus. Well, Apollos had been there for John's ministry, but probably left the land of Israel before Jesus died and was buried and resurrected. You see how, how that could happen? So, He's kind of out of the loop here. He, he, he hasn't heard the latest podcast or checked his news feed, I guess, to see what's happened with, with Jesus of Nazareth in a few years. And, and actually, a lot of years, somehow, it's like he's kind of been living under a rock. Uh, he just hasn't heard yet. So uh, I like how one commentator described him as a, as a man caught in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, to the, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, as he ministered among diaspora Jewish communities out there in the world. And uh, Priscilla, Aquila, they, they pull him out from under the rock he's been living under. <laughs> and and they, it says they, 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 they privately take him aside and they fill him in on the good news. They sit down with him and they discuss the good news of Jesus Christ. And help him understand the gospel better. And as a result of their investment in him, it says he becomes a more effective minister. He was already preaching truth, but he, he was updated. Now he's preaching even more truth. So he's more effective. Verse 27 tells us the brethren uh, encouraged Apollos to go to Achaia, which was in southern Greece, the southern region of Greece. And uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that he specifically went to Corinth. And he has an effective ministry there. Paul would consider Apollos a fellow worker. Paul said, I planted the seed in Corinth, the seed of the gospel, and then Apollos came after him, and he watered it, and God caused the growth. But I find an encouraging principle here for us when it comes to witnessing, and it's simply this. Uh, just share what you know about Jesus. Share what you know about Jesus. A lot of times, I think, uh, we can't teach anything. We can't share the gospel unless we know everything uh, about Jesus or the Bible and you know, no one would ever share the gospel or teach the Bible if, if we did that, if we approached it that way. Um, not even me. Okay, I'm still learning all the time. Uh, there's not a teacher out there who isn't constantly learning all the time. And so you don't have to know everything to share Jesus or to share the Bible with people. You, don't, you do need to know the gospel and, hope, and, and you should be getting a better grasp on the Bible and how to teach it and a working knowledge of the scriptures. But... Guys, you don't have to 
have a pat answer for everything. You don't have to be one of these really gifted apologists out there who just, you know, can explain everything. Just keep pointing people to Jesus the best you can and uh, keep growing like Apollos. So, verse 1 through 7 now. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, On the contrary, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So now we kind of the, the camera kind of shifts back to Paul. Paul has now uh, arrived in Ephesus after his journey there. And uh, again, Ephesus is a large city, 200 to 250,000 people. So that explains how Paul runs into these disciples of John and Aquila and Priscilla didn't. This is a large city. And uh, there's 12 disciples here who are even less aware of the progress of God's program and the revelation of Jesus. Uh, they, they haven't heard the news either. I mean, they heard John's message. They became disciples of John. They've repented, but they haven't heard the gospel yet. So um, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. These, uh, these individuals, it seems they've, just, they've been missing out on the newest revelation uh, just like Apollos did. Remember... Uh, Acts, it seems weird, doesn't it? But Acts, we have to remember as we're going through this book, this is a transitional book. It's a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and we should expect to find here some incomplete forms of faith during this time. Uh, It's an interesting time period where the apostles on the earth at this time, by their spiritual authority, are making this massive transition into the new age, and God is confirming their authority to do this, uh, to, 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 to preach this. And he's, he's affirming their authority by signs and wonders, just like we saw in this passage. Uh, and, and you see this, by the way, Paul lays his hands on them, right, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a sense of an apostolic authority there that we don't see Today And so, having obviously believed the message of Jesus, uh, after Paul witnesses to them, Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And that uh, baptism, water baptism, is a way of identifying with uh, the gospel, with Jesus, with the church, with the gospel, with uh, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. So when we do submersion baptism, right, we're going under the water, we're dying, we're, we're, we're being buried with Christ and being raised to new life in Christ again. It's symbolic of that, or, or maybe if they poured water on their heads, it was a sign of being washed, the Holy Spirit being poured out on them and being cleansed by the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But just like the apostles did and by the way, if, 
If you want to get baptized, let me know. Come talk to me. Let's get that taken care of. I just bring that up every now and then because that is one of the first steps of obedience that we need to take, right? And, and it's, it's exciting. It's fun. Um, anyway, just like the other apostles did, remember in Acts chapter 8, uh, they, they laid hands on the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit comes. So Paul does the same thing. And I think Luke is showing this to us because it shows us that Paul has apostolic authority, just like Peter, just like John. Um, he is one of these divinely commissioned apostles whom God has appointed to this unique task. He's a leader. He's a church leader in a unique way. Um, so he lays his hands upon them. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's evidenced by external external evidence. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying. Again, a miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've talked about this sort of thing uh, enough by now through the book of Acts that uh, I don't feel like I need to do a deep dive into what was going on here other than to say that I, I believe that the tongues are real languages that were spoken. Okay, Real languages that were spoken, spoken by these people without actually having to learn the language. Uh, uh, he, they weren't speaking it with their mind necessarily. So they're speaking another language, but they don't actually know what they're speaking. So um, I don't see it to be a secret prayer language. It's not something everyone did in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's very helpful for us to understand these, these tongues or languages, right? Uh, diaspora Jews had come to Jerusalem for a feast at Pentecost. These are, these are diaspora Jews from all over the world. They've learned all these different languages, and they come here, and, Acts and the disciples start speaking in tongues. And Acts chapter 2, verse 8 says, How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Okay, so they're, they're hearing their native tongue, okay, language. And then tongues were also, according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you can read more about it there, they were also interpretable. You could actually interpret what was being said if you actually had someone there who could speak the language. And Paul said, actually, uh, don't speak in tongues in the church service if it's not interpreted. Okay, so it was interpretable. Uh, but, and Paul said that you have to interpret this so that people could actually be edified by what was said. Because when they were speaking in tongues, they were, they were, they were prophesying, they were praising God, they were maybe teaching. But Paul said, it's kind of like me getting up here and speaking in Spanish, right? There's probably one or two of you who are going to understand what I'm saying unless it's translated. But um, uh, every now and then you come across a teaching, too, that says tongues are necessary for salvation. Have you ever run into that teaching out there? Um, that, that you're not really saved unless you speak in tongues. It's, it's, it's strange because, uh, first, their idea of what tongues is is different from, I think, what biblical tongues is. Um, there's a, there's a teaching out there that teaches it as some sort of ecstatic gibberish speech or whatever. Uh, it's not interpretable. But second, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not everyone speaks in tongues. So to say that everybody has to is, is just flat out wrong. So not everybody spoke in tongues. In fact, tongues was on, his last, on the last on the list of his gifts that he said to desire. Um, he said, I'd rather speak... Uh, five words 
with my mind than, than I don't remember, a thousand words with, that I don't understand, right, in another language. And, uh, in fact, tongues, tongues was last, or sorry, tongues was only mentioned three times in the book of Acts. So it's not like it's happening all the time, constantly. He says, he only mentions it three times in Acts, and it signifies the salvation of a new people group. Now, there's a new people group getting saved, new disciples. There's a, a gathering of people. So uh, while the Tower of Babel, think about this. The Tower of Babel, you remember this in the Old Testament? God confused the languages there, right? Well, at Pentecost, in the book of Acts, what we see with tongues, it's like God is now, um, while, while they were scattered in the Old Testament, tongues, God is now gathering from all nations a people for himself. And so tongues were a sign that God's not just accepting, you know, the Jew from Israel, but he, he's, he's, he's gathering Gentiles. He's gathering people from all the nations, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's a pretty common phrase we're familiar with. But that's what it signifies. Uh, God's Spirit wants to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So a second major issue with this text that I think needs some clarification involves spirit baptism. Um, this passage has been used, I know this is pretty studious, but you hang in there with me. Uh, the, this passage has been used as a proof text in some Pentecostal services, okay, uh, uh, circles, to teach a false doctrine called the second blessing, or full gospel. So, the idea is that you can be a believer, but only through earnest seeking and obedience can you actually receive the gift of the holy spirit so they, they kind of those who teach this look at believers on two different planes those with the spirit those without the spirit and uh, remember acts acts is a transitional book and luke is describing in a narrative story format what happened he, he he's not giving us doctrine necessarily he's just describing what happened here and and a lot of what we're seeing is not the norm today we're in the middle of a huge transition and God was authenticating his apostles and uh, certifying confirming their authority through these various signs and wonders and uh, if we're honest there's no pattern in the book of Acts there's no pattern uh, how people are receiving the Spirit, necessarily. I mean, some receive the Spirit before they're baptized. Some when, uh, when they're baptized. Some after they're baptized. I mean, there's just no pattern in Acts. Uh, there's, a there's a reason for that as you go through and you study it. So that tells us uh, uh, another, gives us another indication. You can't use this text to teach baptismal regeneration you know what i mean by that that you have to be baptized in water to be saved there's a lot of people teaching like unless you get water baptized you're not going to have the spirit of god well again it's just it's just not a pattern you can't teach that this this text doesn't support that and the the new testament letters uh, that teach clear systematic doctrine clear teaching uh tell us that one receives the Spirit of God the moment they believe. Okay, now that we're on the other side of the transition, we have clear teaching. We receive the Spirit of God the moment we believe. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, there's no such thing as a believer or a Christian, whatever you want to call us, 
who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them. Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I think that indicates to us that that was normal. That's the norm, or it's going to be the norm, to receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. And Christians, Christians, we can be, we can be carnal. You know what I mean by that? We can walk in, in sin. We can walk by the sin nature. Or Christians can be spiritual. They can walk by the Spirit, right? As Christians, we have a, a divine nature and we have a sin nature. And we can choose who, what we're going to walk by, right? We're going to walk by the flesh or walk by the Spirit. But every single believer has the Spirit. There is no question. Romans 8, verse 9. Uh, great proof text for that. But a simple witnessing principle for us here might be this. When you go to witness... Just share a clear gospel message. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. By grace, meaning it's free, through faith, meaning we're trusting in something, we're depending on something. What is it? Who are we depending on? Jesus, right? Because he's the one who paid for our sins and rose again from the grave. So what people need today is not a second blessing. It's not water baptism to be saved. The text shows us it's not even enough to repent of your sin alone and be a good moral person. John's disciples repented, right? So that in and of itself is not enough. Jesus is required. Jesus is required. He's the one who paid for our sin. You know, when we stand before God, and if he were to ask us why he should let us into heaven someday, what are we going to point to? Why should I let you into heaven? Because of Jesus. Right? We can't point to ourselves and say, I was a good person. We can't point to our religious works and say, I was baptized. We have to point back to Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. And that's a, a huge huge stumbling block for people because people want to be good enough to get to heaven. It's a lot easier to do religious works than it is to actually trust in Jesus and follow him. So, by grace we have been saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. It's free, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Works might be the uh, good works, religious works, that might be the, the fruit of salvation, but never the basis of it, never the root. So let's keep moving on. Uh, our last verses here, verses 8 through 10. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that was the name for the Christian movement back then, the way, uh, before the people, he withdrew from them and took the disciples away with him and had discussions daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, which would be that western part of Turkey, uh, everyone who lived here heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and and Greeks. So, fourth heading we see today, first uh, picture and last picture setting we see is Paul's ministry climax at Ephesus. Paul's time in Ephesus is what we could call the climax of Paul's ministry 
I mean, God just really used him here big time. God used him powerfully and influentially. In fact, uh, it's going to be interesting. We get to do some fun stuff next week and look at how Paul um, did extraordinary miracles. There's talk about handkerchiefs and aprons and like different healings taking place just by people touching what Paul touched and, you know, different, you know, how... People took their magic books and were burning them. I mean, it was, it was, in, it was, it's, it's pretty intense next week. Or not next week, but the week following. And so I hope you'll join us for that. But um, it says he spends three months here having discussion and just reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews. And when they turn on him, it says he takes his disciples to a lecture hall, some sort of instructional center called the School of Tyrannus, where they discuss and they can reason in peace, basically, not, not be persecuted. Um, Tyrannus is probably the, uh, the owner or the philanthropist behind the school that Paul utilizes for two years. There's an, actually an old tradition, an old, an old codex, they call it, a book, which records Paul using this lecture hall uh, during the siesta time of day from 11 uh, to 4, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So every day he's in there teaching. He's, he's doing his leather work in the mornings and evenings, and he's teaching uh, during the middle of the day. But uh, from here, it says, all of Asia, here's the good news. And this would include some of the, the, the letters in the New Testament, right? Colossae. Uh, uh, all the, the churches, to, the letters written to the churches of Revelation. Um, and since this was a port city, the gospel was advancing far and wide over sea, probably, and land. And next time, again, we'll, Lord willing, we'll continue to study his ministry here. But like I said at the beginning... I don't think there's a single Christian soul here who doesn't want to reach the lost. We all have friends, we all have family members that we love and that we want to have a relationship with Jesus. And so, how are people really coming to Christ today? And uh, in, in his recent book, God's Growing Church, subtitled, How, how People Are Actually Coming to Christ Today, Gary McIntosh uh, has done some research over the course of 10 years recently that indicated 60% of people are coming to Christ through friends and family. Through friends and family. That number's down in recent decades, but it's still the, the, the highest. About 17% said a church staff member led them to Christ. Someone at church, um, be it the pastor, be it... Uh, Sunday school teacher, nursery worker, small group director, some sort of other lay leader, you know, that just had an extended period of influence on them. And uh, that number was up, by the way, in, in the last, recent decades. About 11% said someone other than these led them to Christ. And it was like a diverse group of settings, you know, evangelistic messages, TV, radio, uh, maybe uh, I think a campus ministry, some sort of evangelistic event. So think about that. I think that's hard evidence. I think that's hard evidence for us. I think we could take a toll or a tally around here and come up with very similar numbers. And it might even be a combination of friends and family and church staff, right? <laughs> but think about how you, do you want to lead others to Jesus Christ? Think about how you were saved. I think that's all this is saying. 
Think about how you were saved. How did it happen? Wasn't it someone just sitting down with you, someone close to you, and just discussing spiritual matters? I think that's why you see the closer the relationship, the greater, more likely it is that someone would come to Christ. You know, relationships have been called the bridges of God. The bridges of God. This is the number one dynamic. People coming to Christ through a trusted, personal relationship with another person. And the closer the relationship, the more likely to come to Christ. Because, like they say, you can, sometimes you can only speak the truth into someone's life as deep as your relationship is with them. There's a reason why they're called, relationships are called bridges of God. However, within that relationship, it's the number one method that persuades people to trust in Christ is simply conversation about spiritual things. Macintosh uh, writes this. Instead, people said that it was simply conversation. He said it's, it's not, you know, these rote gospel presentations that we have and gospel track presentations. He says it's simply conversation. They just had spiritual conversation with a family member or friend or staff member. It seems as though people are coming to faith through natural conversations and discussions. Just talking among friends about life and sports and spiritual things. About life and the Huskers and spiritual things. And, and through that conversation, they come to understand what Christianity is and what commitment to Christ is. And some people just all of a sudden say, I believe. Yeah, I get it. I believe that. It's not that they necessarily pray a particular prayer or something. Some do, but at times they just say, I've, you know, I've really been thinking about this. We've talked about it, and, and I believe it. It's as simple as that. And, uh, you know, that's in, I, I find that encouraging. I found another statistic encouraging. I'm not a big fan of statistics, by the way. I don't, I don't talk about them a lot. But even in our... Our culture, our culture's changed, right? But 65% of, pe- 65% of the people in the United States still call themselves Christians. That's encouraging because uh, there's a good chance that most people out there aren't totally turned off by the gospel. Right? And they're at least willing to talk about it. A lot of people are just like the people in our text today. I think they have a, they're, they're, in, they're nominative Christians, you know what I mean? They're Christian in name only, and they, just, they, they don't have a lot of information. They just need someone to sit down with them and explain the gospel a little bit more clearly, a little more, I don't know, in a way that they can understand, just someone they can trust. And uh, one of the things we see Paul do in Acts over and over is just this, isn't it? I mean, we've been walking with Paul. This is his third missionary journey. What's he doing? He's just going around explaining the gospel to people, just discussing spiritual matters. He's just entering into dialogue. And we should know what kind of dia- we should know what kind of dialogue this is, what kind of discussion this is that he's having with people. His discussion is discussion. You know, it's it's not him imposing his view on other people. It's persuasion, not imposition. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, He's not imposing his views on them without their willingness. He's not trying to force the gospel down their throat. He's talking to people about things, about spiritual matters. These aren't quick encounters. 
He's not just handing off a gospel track here and there. He's sitting down with people and, and talking about the gospel. Not emotional pleas, no, no cold calling, no passive-aggressive posts on Facebook, right? He's not combative. He's not defensive. It's just respectful discussion. He's just trying to win people to Christ through reasoning with them and explaining the Scriptures. Gaining a real appreciation for the gospel. And I think this is something that we struggle with. I don't think we want to hear this this morning. How are people actually coming to Christ? Well, you actually have to sit down and just discuss spiritual matters with them. I don't think we want to hear that, do we? I think we want to hear that I can just write a letter and send a book to my friend or send, give them a gospel tract. They'll be good to go and we don't actually have to talk about it. That's what I would, I don't know about you, but I'd rather do that, you know. I'd rather preach and just everybody get saved that way. And I don't actually have to like, you know, talk through some difficult things. But it's just not the case. Paul is winning people over and over through discussion, reasoning. Let's talk about this. I, I think we have a prime example here this morning. I mean, one of our college students came to Christ. Last fall... I don't want to mention his name, Jack, <clears throat> but what were we doing? It's just me and Ed hanging out at the Cito's house. We're just sitting down having a discussion about reality, talking about worldviews. And I asked Jack if I could share his name a little bit, but yeah, we're just sitting down talking about worldviews. And Jack says, yeah, I'm, I believe that. So we, I think this is something we've got to get better at because social media has wrecked us and our ability to, you know, converse without, you know, becoming defensive and offended and all of that. So, let's think about this. I, uh, just just in, in closing, I've, I've told you the conversion story probably of, of Dr. Rosaria Champagne, now Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria was a far-left professor and militant policy-writing pro-abortion gay rights activist. I mean, she was militant. And when Promise Keepers, you remember this ministry? It was a men's ministry that used to fill football stadiums with men and young men. And uh, when Promise Keepers came to her town, she wrote an article in the newspaper basically talking down the idea of men, men and fathers. And if you were to ask her today how she became a Christian, she would say she became a Christian as a result of 500 dinner conversations with Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. Smith was their last name. But after reading the newspaper article she wrote, there was like a young deacon in their church who took that article and laid it on Pastor Ken's desk and said, we've basically got to shut this woman up. Okay, because she's going to wreck the ministry. And... Uh, <laughs> um, and Ken says, well, I guess we better invite her over for dinner. <laughs> and she accepts the invite. Not because she actually wants to hear the gospel. She's writing a book on how the Bible has no application for the secular world. And she just basically wanted free research from a guy who knew the Bible. And she figured if I'm going to write a book refuting the Bible, I better get some ammo. You know, I better learn the Bible a little more. And, and just every meal, 500 meals, she would come over to their house. 
And every meal, they would just take a brick down, you know, in her defensive wall. And every meal, they'd build up a little bit of trust. And, and it says, she said, it was like my life just started getting better the moment I had Christians in it. Man, I want to be that kind of Christian. <laughs> People's lives are better just because I'm, I'm in it. But he said they, didn't, they never invited her to church. They never had uh, a fiery conversation about Romans 1 and the wrath of God on sin. Right? Uh, just patient conversation. And through it, she began to ask harder questions that her worldview could not answer. And uh, she came to Christ. Very slowly, very patiently, through thought-provoking discussion and showing Christ-like love. And uh, that's our challenge. I think that's our challenge here today. If you really love them, sit down, talk, and by God's grace, don't become that defensive you know, person and kick them out of your life when they say something mean to you, because they will. You know, we, we've got to grow up. We've got to get beyond this social media. And then the exclamation points at the end of our comments, you know what I mean? And this is, guys, honestly, one of the reasons we're having this shootout this afternoon. Is because there's a lot of people like Rosaria who aren't going to come to church. They'll never just walk into a worship service. But they might accept an invite to dinner. And they might accept an invite to shoot some clays and have a little fun. It's what we could call a halfway event where you invite people to get a taste of church, get a taste of the community, God's people, and uh, see what it's like. And so I'd challenge you to invite a friend both to the shootout today and then over to dinner sometime. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for Jesus and what he does for us. I pray that you would give us, like Paul says in Colossians, open doors, opportunities to share the gospel with people and to build relationships and to enter into warm and persuasive discussion about spiritual realities, spiritual matters. Lord, there's not a single person here who doesn't want their friends and family and co-workers to come to know Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us wisdom on how to do that and how to be winsome. And by your grace, Lord, give us self-control. Control our tongues. May our tongues be seasoned with salt and grace so that we may know how to respond to, to those who oppose the truth. Remind us that we're not... We don't have to stand up for the truth all the time. We can, we can just love people and uh, help them understand it. Amen.